Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn on the hottest and most blissful day of, of the summer, here in a balmy Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in uh, what the tabloids would call a scorcher here in south-east London, which makes me glad when this is over that I shall be having a net. The net will take place in Maida Vale, and I shall demonstrate uh, the, the repertoire that's delighted batsmen all over the world. But uh, much more importantly, I'm uh, absolutely thrilled and honoured to welcome our guest today, Dame Angela Eagle. Um, Angela has been the MP for Wallasey in the Wirral since um, 1992, um, when her sister Maria joined her in the House as the member for um, Liverpool um, Garston. They became the first set of twins to sit in the House of Commons together for several centuries, and they became the first ever set of twins to um, be ministers in the same government, because Angela uh, occupied uh, many posts in the Blair and um, Brown governments. She um, recently became became a dame in the New Year's Honours list, but most importantly, from uh, our point of view, uh, she's been a cricketer and a cricket lover. And uh, that's really why we welcome her especially gladly to the podcast today. Thank you for joining us, Angela. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I could talk about cricket for hours, as you're probably about to find out. Angela, you were the first woman cricketer ever to play, am I right in saying, for the House of Commons cricket team? Me and uh, Cheryl Gillan probably share that accolade because Cheryl was elected in 1992, as was I, and we were both cricketers. So we, we made a joint first appearance, I think. Sadly, she died this year. Indeed, she was a lovely person. And uh, one of those people who brings dignity and honour to politics. Not that many of them around these days, but she's... More uh... than you think, Peter, but uh, it's sometimes hard to discern where they are. (laughs) (laughs) And so you played... Tell us about this match, this match where you you and uh, Cheryl first played for the... Well, the the match I particularly remember um, playing... Uh, with Cheryl was uh, when we actually went down to Rodine in Brighton to play. And of course, they've got a very good team there and a good uh, wicket as well. And we went down with uh, Lords and Commons team. Cheryl and I were the only two women in it. Uh, the rest were the usual men. But I particularly remember uh, Roger Stott, who was uh, one of the Wigan MPs, a, a Labour man. And he was always impeccably kitted out in all of the very expensive Lords and Commons jumpers and kit. And uh, he he got a first ball duck to the Rodin fast bowler, despite looking the smartest cricketer on the field. And uh, when he came trudging back after that experience, he um, he was full of praise for how um, brilliant the Rodin fast bowler was. Um, but I remember uh, talking to Cheryl and saying, well, all of that fantastic kit didn't really help him, did it? It's often the way, isn't it, Angela? Somebody, a really, somebody really brilliantly kitted um, doesn't quite live up to it. I think it creates a bit of pressure on you to have, to have really <laughs> yeah, spect- have spectacularly good kit. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's a, a very astute observation, Richard. It took a long time, didn't it, for the Lords and Commons to actually field um, any women in its team. The club had been going, I think, for about 150 years. 
when um, uh, you and Cheryl first played in that match. Um, yeah. And 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 there'd been women MPs for uh, over seventy years by that by that stage. I think some of it is the just the general paucity of of women who play cricket. As you know, it's very much a redoubt of uh, public schools, not played so much at state schools. And I also think that um, you know when I went into the Commons, Cheryl and I would have been between us two of the sixty women that featured in the House of Commons out of 650. And so because there are fewer women there and fewer women played cricket, I think it was, it's not a surprise to me, although I don't particularly approve that it took that long to get a woman in the team. And of course, we really weren't catered for, no changing rooms, no kit that fitted us, mm. no, uh, no way to sort of really try and fit in any more than by sort of hoping to run off to the toilets to get changed. That was um, very much echoes, I don't know if you heard it, um, Angela, the, the very last podcast we did with Ralph Nicholson, the historian of women's cricket in England, and that's almost a microcosm of the problems that um, so many women cricketers faced in England at so many levels for such a, a very long time. I think it's only just beginning to change. I mean, certainly when I came in and joined the Lords and Commons, it was at the very end of what was probably a golden age for Lords and Commons cricket because the um, the whips were increasingly not happy with allowing people to go away to play all day um, a, a cricket match, whereas talking to colleagues in the team for many years beforehand, there'd been an unwritten rule that uh, if you were in the Lords and Commons, you could just be let off paired. You know, they'd they'd um, they'd be delighted to allow you to go off and play. Whereas by the time I arrived, it was getting to the stage uh, we we had a government that 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 had a majority that was gradually whittling away, and they weren't that happy to allow people to absent themselves from the Commons to play a cricket match for an entire day. And I think there were generally more Conservatives than Labour, although we had some fantastic players. People like Graham Allen was a fantastic cricketer. But there tended to be more Tories in the in the team when I was around it. And so you couldn't pair people off in the same way. And I think the whips started to worry about that. So what you're talking about here, Angela, aren't you, is the 92 to 97 major administration, which started exactly. off with a majority of about 20 or so. Yes, and then by the end, of course, it was it was in a minority because of the so-called I can't mention it on the radio, but you'll remember them, the bastards. <laughs> no, I do. I was a reporter in Westminster at the time, and by the uh, uh, there were knife edge votes from Maastricht onwards, weren't there? Where people really weren't going to be let off. It's not like the current government where it does have a big majority, and it was really, really rather tense. There are, I imagine, though, that one or two of the Tory Tory cricketers, the whips would have been all too glad to see them back off. I'm not sure that we did have um, much of a collection of Tory you-know-whats in the cricket team. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have sent us away every week, I think, probably. Well, um, well John, John Redwood was a regular player. As, that's true. And, and um, you know, he actually challenged um, John Major in the middle of that parliament. I don't think he had. I don't think he ever had, had much trouble um, 
getting leave to the play. I remember uh, once when we actually had a Lords versus Commons match at the Oval. And of course, being me, I'd never played on a ground that was like that. It was like playing cricket on velvet. I was completely Mm. astonished actually being in a a ground um, with a proper uh, sort of uh, field of play like that. And I remember that... um, our secret cricket helper was uh, Lord Archer, who was so busy. Um, he appeared for the Lords and he was so busy um, clowning around that he ran several of them out <laughs> and was a great deal of help <laughs> to, to the Commons cause. I, I remember at, at lunch, John Major came over when he was the Prime Minister to watch the Lords and Commons play at the Oval. And I remember having a very uh, useful and good discussion with him about his efforts to try to get the Lords to accept women members and more mm-hmm. women members. We've heard Geoffrey Archer's account of those terrible events at, at the Oval. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were jolly glad, let's put it this way, that he was on the Lords team rather than the Commons. Uh, uh, very underst- very understandable, yeah. Um Angela, I'd like to move back um, in time to your early life. You were born in Yorkshire, and you were an early fan of Jeff Boycott. Yeah, um, still am. Still, am. well, I'm delighted uh, to hear that. But you, in a profile, you gave a rather unusual take on on Jeff Boycott, and you said you were impressed with his his broad mindedness and his approachability. <laughs> what was he broad minded about? Um, I remember asking him a question. Uh, he 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 came um, to a dinner at the uh, Commons Cricket club and uh, I asked him a question about T20 and the way that it had developed batting particularly the reverse sweep expecting him perhaps to be very very huffy about it or very conservative about it and actually he said if they can execute a shot like that all power to their elbow so I thought I found him very much um, a man who was very open-minded about how cricket should be played and how it was evolving. Um, obviously, his um, great love is Test cricket, as is, I think, mine. But um, but I, I was um, pleasantly surprised by how open-minded he was and how he recognised the skills that um, T20 and the different formats have actually developed in the game. You're right that in his commentary, and I miss him a lot i thought he was very oh, astute I his commentary um or his summary i suppose is what his tech but anyway that really came over his appreciation of people who were far more aggressive and unorthodox than he was on the subject of the reverse sweep richard and i discovered in our researches into pakistan cricket that the first cricketer to use it was actually hanif Mohammed, who is renowned as the most offensive batsman of all time yeah. Uh, and he used he unveiled it in a, at Lords when he scored 187 not out in the um in 1967 that wasn't it, it was first used which is I didn't realize it was that old Peter but oh. it just shows you how innovation can lurk around for a while and suddenly become relevant years later as more people understand how to do it it is well it, it wasn't really i mean it, it is striking that it came from 1967 there wasn't all that much use for that then i mean the first class and test cricket was the predominant form of the game, and um, batsmen were trained rightly to play to play long innings and and to cut out risks. Uh, the reverse sweep has always got an element of risk. 
I think that's right. Although I remember watching Sunday, I used to be an avid watcher of Sunday league cricket um, on the television when it was um, broadcast in black and white. And I remember watching um, Gary Sober's score six sixes live. <sighs> so um, I do think that there was always a role for a, for very hard hitting offensive batting, but um, not in such an unorthodox way. Well, he was law unto himself um, and a genius. And, of course, those six sixes were hit in a first-class game. That's uh, right. They hit in a county match, and they, they, they result in a declaration. You know, of course, there's a, there's a big black market in the ball that was hit out of the ground at Swansea. And there are dozens of alleged versions of it on sale. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm struck something again in your early life by something that echoes what Ralph Nicholson told us. You and your sister were taught cricket to play by your father, who was, a, I think, a big um, cricket enthusiast and, and a player, and a very good player. But you weren't allowed, either of you, to play at a primary school. No, that we, were, we were told that girls weren't allowed to play cricket during school hours because the ball was too hard for us. So we used to, um, we used to be allowed to play after school, oddly. And um, I think if I'd have managed to get some decent coaching at that age, I'd have been, um, yeah, a little bit of something to reckon with. In the end, I was a very enthusiastic amateur without much training, I suppose, um, as a result of that. I always, you know, a little bit of me resented that. I was outraged about it at the time. Um, they used to allow us to score the cricket match for the boys. Oh, um, yes. and, and so it was like... It was very, very annoying and um, a similar sort of thing with I was playing chess at the same time and in the chess field was told that girls couldn't play chess because their brains were too small. Um, And then we were told the ball was too hard for us to be allowed to play cricket. So it just drove me up the wall with frustration. So this is as late, and these two attitudes are as late as, what, the late the late 60s, late 60s, early 70s, maybe. Because uh, Ralph, as I say, Ralph Nicholson talked a lot to us uh, last week about these sort of, you know, the, the institutional barriers to to women's cricket, of which that was, and one of the most powerful is the fact that it just was, didn't penetrate state schools, state education for girls. It was actively stopped. Because of these, it was just you. You should not be venturing here, you know. And and it, it's a crime, really. I remember um, years later meeting the um, England women's team when they just won the Ashes. You'll remember uh, that, and talking to them, uh, none of them had really picked up the game uh, before before they were fifteen. Mm. And you can imagine how brilliant some of them would have been if they'd have been introduced to the game much much earlier when the boys are i hope that's beginning to be dealt with now but it's taken a long time i mean cricket's retreating from state schools for boys too isn't it i mean it's um pressures on time they allege um safety organization need for dedicated grounds and all the equipment and all sorts of excuses made like that but it's i do suspect richard that it's it is about having decent grounds and groundsmen to keep the wickets in reasonable order. And I think that's why the cricket authorities themselves are trying to think of different ways of playing it that that uh, don't uh, use actual 
grass pitches, but obviously you lose an awful lot of the subtlety and skill in the game if you don't play it on a proper wicket. You do, but I mean, with only two hours a week of, um, and that's not even mandatory of physical education in schools, um, it's not surprising that within schools, they two hours a week is not enough for children to get an active participation in, in cricket, is it? It needs more. Nothing like enough. Mm. No. Exactly. And I mean, it's not good for uh, the general fitness of children in the nation either. I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be um, in favour of having much more money put into sport in schools, including the technical areas, so that we could actually introduce kids to some of the best games there are it's similar with tennis and the technicalities around playing that but I think cricket's unique in terms of having to have reasonable wickets and and the kind of equipment that you need to play it I think you played outside school didn't you um Angela yeah. because you went on to you and Maria both played for, for Lancashire girls yeah where did, you, where, where did you get your other opportunities to play well, sort of searched them out with a women's cricket team in Southport, which was down the road from where we lived at the time, and were able to do a little bit there. Uh, I remember actually once playing some um, some England um, trials when we had uh, 10 over matches, and I remember my sister bowling at the England, the then England captain, England girls captain, who skied the ball straight to me in the outfield. And you know when you're under a ball and it's miles up and you have time to think about it as it's descending. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fortunately, it was um, bold eagle, court eagle. Oh. I managed to hang on to it. And it was an England player you caught out. It was. I think it was the England captain. So you were quite a reasonable... You were quite a reasonable player. I mean, what tell us about Lancashire girls in those days. Well, they 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 were uh, again scratching around for sort of access and opportunities to play and reasonable leagues. It was all very trying to put it together as you go along um, because girls were really not. It was difficult to get into a stable league and be able to get proper coaching. So it was it was good fun, but uh, it, it wasn't like going into a what was going on on the boys' side at the time, you know, you were always trying to see if the, there was a team of other girls somewhere you could play. I think to some extent, um, the the best girls are in, are in mixed teams um, because at least then they could, if they managed to get into them, be able to play regularly, something I never really managed to achieve. And what happened then was that the demands of trying to do that started interfering with my chess playing and I was junior international chess player. And so I had to, in the end to choose between the two. And so I chose the pastime that I was the best at, which was chess. That's very, mm. um, that's an amazing achievement actually to be a junior international uh, chess player. Dominic Lawson, the you know the former editor of the Sunday Telegraph, he he was a mad keen chess player and a very keen cricketer, and uh, he writes very well about both. Yeah, I mean there are some similarities between the two games, as I say, more a strategic thing. I would I would say that cricket is the nearest uh, sport to chess in terms of how you strategize about it. 
I, I think it's about spatial reasoning. I think it's about how you have plans to get particular, know what the strengths of particular players are and you have plans to get them out. You've got the very, very many different methods of bowling and how and where you bowl, what sort of bowlers you um, use. It, it's just very strategic, which is quite like chess. As we've been hearing from quite a few previous guests, including Nathan Lehman, the England team's chief data analyst, we've um, an incredible amount of mathematics and you know and statistical analysis is now entering into into cricket, and it's now informing the way that the cricket's played, particularly in T Twenty. I think also the the um, psychologically it's quite similar, although it's not obviously chess is not as physical as cricket. Um, you you can uh, dominate or not or be dominated psychologically uh, on a chess board quite similarly to how you see the best cricketers dominate. I mean, I remember watching Viv Richards stride out to um, the middle. There's uh, that's that's what I would um, sort of say was psychological domination when he was twirling his bat on the way out. I had the experience with Lords and Commons of having to bowl at Gordon Greenwich, and I felt. <laughs> I felt extremely dominated, but mercifully, the, the great man was run out shortly into my spell. I didn't have to serve many deliveries up to him. Yeah, I think that was obviously your your um, your plan to get him <laughs> worked, Richard. But I, I do bowl for a lot of runouts. Yes, that's um, <laughs> it's very much a strategy. Just thinking of in the overlap between chess and cricket. Um, Peter and I knew and played quite a bit with. In fact, you would have done, I think, too, Angela, um, with Lord Rennell. Um, mm. Tremaine Rennell, uh, he played in, a, in that match at the Oval, as, as I remember. Uh, Tremaine was a very competitive, very good cricket player right up into his into his 70s uh, as a wicketkeeper batsman. But he was also a very good chess player and he managed Vladimir Kramnik for the right. when Kramnik won the World Chess Championship in London. And, yeah, um, I mean, and so presumably he was doing all the psychology there as well and helping helping keep his man calm. He did, and Kramnik indeed was very calm, um, playing Kasparov, winning it, as you recall, against Kasparov, who's a, Crikey, a yeah. very dominant player indeed, dominant as, technically and psychologically. But Kramnik, I, I met him through Tremaine. Kramnik was a you know, very cool customer, and, um, and, he, and he, took, he took the championship. Yeah. Tremaine, I played a lot of chess with Tremaine later in his life, and if... He was a much better player than I was, but if I could occasionally put him under pressure, he'd look up to the sky and say, Vladimir Kramnik, tell me what to do. And somehow, <laughs> somehow, miraculously, a move would come to him, you know, over the, <laughs> over, over the ether. Yes. <laughs> um, Angela, race and sport, well, actually, just race generally, has suddenly become a very high-profile issue. And it's something which... Richard and I have been trying to talk about with all kinds of different people. Uh, we had Andre Odendahl talking about racism in South African cricket uh, and how it started uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've ha we're going to have next next week Lon uh, Lonsdale Skinner who's talking about racism in English uh, cricket, uh, and of course at the moment we ha we're still suffering the aftermath of the Euros. Uh, have you come across or witnessed or been involved in fighting racism in Britain? Well, I've spent my whole political career um, 
before I was in Parliament and, and subsequently trying to argue that there ought to be equal access to uh, sport for women. And obviously I'm, a, I'm an admirer, by the way, of the, the Paralympics and how that has helped to sport to be more inclusive. Uh, and that applies equally also to uh, issues of racism. I mean, when I was eight years old and I went to my first chess tournament and I was the only girl, my sister was playing, my twin sister Maria was playing in the under 13s because we didn't want to have to play each other. And I remember vividly sitting down to play the first round and this little boy opposite me said, no, this can't be right. This can't be right. Girls don't play chess. He was making this big fuss because he was playing the only girl in the tournament. And that's the first time I'd come across anything like that. I'd, my parents had always brought me up not to even think about being a girl, much less for it to stop me doing things. I beat him when I, I realised in the fuss he was making, he was actually very, very frightened of losing to a girl. Mm. Um, so I beat him and um, then I won the tournament and I was awarded the first prize, which was a Biggles book. <laughs> so obviously it wasn't intended for a girl to win. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and when I became the under 18 girls champion uh, joint, um, the prize money for that uh, in chess was to share uh, £30. So that was £15 between us for the senior girls championship and the under 11 boys got 45 quid. So I came across this kind of bias in, in competitive sports right away. And I think it, it applies across the board to access. I mean, how many black people are members of uh, Lords at the moment? You know, we've seen things like the Ollie Robinson tweets, which are the kind of updated version of the kind of attitudes that you're likely to get if you don't fit in for whatever reason. And of course, you know, I mean, Basil D'Oliveira and his fight to um, be allowed to tour with the England team in, in South Africa is is part of the heroic struggles against apartheid which cricket was very involved in whether it wanted to be or not so you know the 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 game and the people who ran the game wanted to stop Basil Oliveira going because they didn't want there to be a fuss absolutely one of the things again one of the themes we have uh, picked up in the last few weeks uh, is the attempt when we're talking to Ralph Nicholson and she started to research women's cricket, she was told, actually, you're not going to find any archives, any records. It's not going to be there at all. Why are you? And Andre Odendahl, the great historian of South African cricket, was told exactly the same thing when he wanted to research black cricket in South Africa before World War One. I. I mean, why, for example, uh, none of the fantastic Asian clubs in Yorkshire were, were, did you know? Did any of these players ever appear? Yorkshire, and I'm a bit, and I'm a Yorkshire fan. I was born in Yorkshire, so obviously I'm a great. Um, I, I always want them to succeed, but they were very well known for um, not using overseas players, and they never used to manage to scout or find somehow any of the go around any of the clubs that gave Asian cricketers in Yorkshire the chance to play. So it's only until very recently they were as white as it were possible to be as Yorkshire got more and more diverse. And so that is a big problem and it says something about attitudes. Yeah, it's, it's, there were Asian... It's something, Richard, we ought to uh, 
do work on at some point. Well, famously, the first Asian, first player of Asian origin to play for Yorkshire was Sachin Tendulkar. Yeah, that's right. Not not a bad one to start with, but really. um... But, but, I mean, you know, but people of Asian origin have been born in Yorkshire and would have been eligible to play under the old rules since about, what, late 1950s, early 1960s. Exactly. And and yet these rules were, I mean, I didn't mind the idea that one should only come from Yorkshire if you were playing for Yorkshire. And, and I remember, you know, the talk was very much that you had to have your son born in Yorkshire so they could play cricket for Yorkshire. But there you are. Somehow it didn't seem to include people who were born in Yorkshire. And I think that's a stain on, on the history of, of the a club that I support, let's face it. Angela, you're a big supporter of international cricket, staying on terrestrial freedom air media. Is that still your view? And um, how important is it that um, cricket, in particular, is a rather complex sport, um, should have access to you know the general population? Yeah. Well, I I was a supporter of it staying on terrestrial television for precisely that reason, Richard, um, that the audiences are much larger. I think if you if you look at the recent example of Channel 4 picking up the television rights to the uh, series in India and you look at the viewing figures uh, compared to the Sri Lanka tour, uh, which just preceded it, you'll see that there's a massive difference positive difference in, in the free-to-air. More people watch it. But obviously, there's also an issue of how you get money into the game, which is what the uh, taking it uh, off terrestrial television and, and having it behind paywalls actually allows to happen. So, I mean, I would like to see some some reasonable balance between the two because you can't you can't impoverish cricket. But at the same time, if you take it away from... Uh, easy free access you get a situation where fewer and fewer people watch it and that's more and more of a problem particularly for test with a five-day game it's probably easier for t20 following the fantastic trailblazing of the ipl to to make money and that's beginning to get a lot of money into cricket and we've got the hundred coming up starting soon we'll see how that goes down in in the uk but I, I think it's a dilemma really you can have the most fantastic sport and if nobody's seeing it how does that actually help the game make it to the next generation i do think that the bbc should at least have bid for the cricket rights which it didn't do that's why it ended up in sky because the bbc decided to bid for Formula One instead. It didn't have a budget for both. And I did feel that was... Um, it showed a, a a sort of failure by the BBC. It wasn't just cricket has to, who t- had to take the blame for that decision. I, th- I suppose it's um, a terrible thing for me to say, but it's inexplicable that they should think that Formula One is somehow... <laughs> well said, Angela. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just displaying my own particular prejudices. Yeah, it's a prejudice which I'm proud to say that I fully share. And prejudice with some statistical base. I mean, there are not enough playing, people playing cricket, but there are a lot more playing cricket each weekend than driving Formula One cars. Although there's plenty <laughs> of people who think they are, I suppose, but that's a different matter altogether. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's all in the mind. All right. But... Um, one of those um, those viewing figures uh, you mentioned for the um, return of the India series to uh, terrestrial television to Channel 4, um, I think they showed 
uh, a lot of most of the gains were among older viewers, and we've heard it said by some guests that younger viewers don't really care very much which channel shows any particular sport because they watch sport in very short sort of gobbets, very yeah. short sections, you know, online with a lot of other online activity. And um, well, I, th- I think obviously that, um, that there is a tendency to just watch the sort of wickets or the, the sort of fours and sixes. And if you if you go on the uh, ECB app, which I have, you can they put videos up of the wickets and and particularly good catches or mm. or you know fantastic strokes for four or six, um, which I suppose is just a sort of highlights of the highlights. Um, and it's yeah. one of those things that um, probably being my age, I disapprove of that you only get to see the good bits, but you don't you miss so much in cricket if you don't actually see how a game, particularly a test match, is actually developing. Sometimes some of the most fascinating, most contested parts of a cricket match are when virtually no runs are scored and, and there's a difficult mm. pitch and fantastic bowlers and and watchful batsmen. You know, it's very much, it's, it's, like the, it's like the sea. There are so many different moods in a game. I remember in, the, in that famous 81 series, you know, when Botham came in, I think it was at head... Not at Headingley, the one match afterwards. And oh, that was uh, Old Trafford, was it? Old Trafford. Yeah. And he goes in, a, but all morning, as you recall, it had been Tavare scoring about 11 runs in two hours. And it was the contrast between that, that you know, Cavare's blocking and both of them sort of uninhibited hitting, which made the beauty of that day. I remember uh, going to see uh, Sri Lanka play their first ever test match against England at Lords, uh, and I bumped into an old mate of mine from um, uh, St John's where we both went to college at Oxford, and Tavaray was actually an old St John's boy. And um, we ended up, like you often did at those occasions, down at the Taverners, and uh, I was there with some of my mates from St. John's who naturally would have wanted an old St. John's boy to do very well, but he scored the slowest 50. We had a wisdom out. He yeah. scored the slowest 50 that had ever been recorded, I think, and we were cheering to the rafters when he holed out. Well, it's actually going back to chess, Angela. I wonder if there's a bit of a comparison between you know, regular chess and blitz chess. Yes. Have, yes. You, have you ever played any blitz chess? Um, yes, and five-minute chess. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I would say that it hones your analytical capacities and your spatial feel for positioning. Mm-hmm. So yes, definitely, uh, and and I think from a spectator point of view, obviously T Twenty is um, very spectator friendly. We're hoping that the hundred is going to be similarly. Um, and uh, and and obviously one day more than five, but the test match is still the greatest form of the game to me. Yeah, quite right. I um, can't resist asking you, Angela. What do you think of the marketing of the hundred? And <laughs> you know, do you think it? You know, it's based on. It seems to be based on the premise that um, women are too. You know, just can't get their heads around uh, the. You know, the long form of the game. <laughs> Well, I think that the women are going to be grateful to be um, included in such a, an exciting and very well advertised new 
innovation. So that's the first thing. I think um, women's cricket is so unused to being thought about and included as a matter of course that I think they're all looking forward to. And, and, it, and it gives them, you know, a chance to develop the professional game so that you can actually earn a living by being a professional women uh, cricketer and um, look forward to surviving instead of having to scrape by like some of the pioneers did. So I'm sure that, you know, that they're, they're, they're very excited to be involved. So you're pro, from the tone of your voice, like me, you're supportive of the 100 idea. I, I th- I'm not going to be snobby about any different sort of cricket. Um, if it can be commercial, I think it might um, attract a different audience. And that's all well and good. However, you know, getting my head around 10, 10 over, 10 ball overs is something I'm going to have to get used to with a with a break in the middle, apparently, if you want one. <laughs> I'm reading uh, Asish Nandi, uh, the, the Indian thinker's book about cricket, The Tower of Cricket. Uh, and he argues, uh, interestingly, that cricket is an anti-capitalist sport, i.e. it's based on rhythms which predate the arrival of capitalism it's quite wasteful you know it's, it's luxurious with with time it's you set aside days on end you're not driven by a consumerist um mentality does that make the, uh, and your your love for test cricket suggests you share some of that uh sensibility i i, I do um i think there's just much more subtlety and interest involved in Um, a five-day test match but if one was arguing that it's purely purely um, you would say that test matches should be never ending until both innings are finished and of course that that was changed and you might even say that you should have uncovered wickets which is one of the other innovations that prevented the um, the vagaries of the weather having too much of a an influence on on the results so these things evolve um but I'm definitely in favour of things that aren't instant being preserved. So I think that I think the hundred might be exciting. I'm definitely a fan of T20, um, but my real love is reserved for Test match cricket. They did have timeless tests in the twenties and thirties. They um, did. They, they once had to stop one, didn't they, in Australia because the boat was leaving. South Africa. South Africa. South Africa. But it's South Africa. Yes. But the other, um, they they actually have timeless matches in, um, well, they used to in the best schools in India and Pakistan. Um, they played two in. They played two innings over lots of as many afternoons as they needed. Two innings, and um, you know, and both sides had to be both sides all out. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that way, the the great skill of batting out the final day is completely missed. There's yes. no point in batting out the final day because it just carries on. No, we've discussed this with others. The art of, and it's something I had to do a lot in the Lords and Commons. The art of, you know, battling for the draw. And, that's right. Um, that's about the only thing gone. I was any good gone. at with the bat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I think you're being too modest Angela but uh, it's a skill it's a, certainly it's a skill that's um that's disappearing and and I've actually played with a lot of um people of like 50 and 60 who've never played a timed match of any kind anywhere in their in their careers. Yeah. Well I don't think the whips would have let us away for one of them. Let's <laughs> yeah. Going back to those Indian matches um when he was a teenager as a result, in one of those games, um, 
Tendulkar made a triple century and took part in the records in a record stand with another future Indian test player, um, Vinod Kambli. Um, they put on 660 in a, 664 together in a school match. <laughs> and one of the bowlers who bowled at them also went on uh, in that ordeal. We probably had to bowl 70 or 80 overs in that long innings. Um, also went on to play test cricket in India. So yeah. it's, it's not a bad training. <laughs> no, it sounds like a good training. And of course, um, um, Tendulkar, I don't think he ever scored 300 in a test match, did he? That was just um, Brian Lara and Graham Gooch. Yep, that's um, a bit of a few others made 300. But um, yeah, I, I think you're right, Tendulkar didn't quite get there. Actually, I don't know um, if you ever played with them, but at one stage, when I played, I played quite a lot for the Lords and Commons, and at one stage, the side was um, absolutely full of lobbyists. Um, I think they they were always short of players, and lobbyists used to play for the for the Lords and Commons quite quite regularly. And I just wondered whether you'd ever experienced anybody trying to lobby, lobby you, or um, any. It's quite a lot of journalists played for the Lords and Commons. Did anybody? use um, uh, those matches as a chance for a bit of lobbying or to get a to get a special story get an exclusive story um not not to me I never saw any of that going on I think there was a kind of unwritten sort of rule that it wasn't cricket to behave like that I literally the times that I appeared never saw any of that happening there was a bit of banter between different political parties sometimes but really no uh, I think it was understood that you left your outside uh, life off the cricket field yeah. up to yes I I once turned up for a game and I there was a politician I won't name him not a very important one and I'd been rather rude about him and he and I went into the dressing room and said hello everyone and he gave me a public bollocking in front of everybody else in the uh, room for about five minutes, I didn't say anything. I didn't think it was appropriate. And I, I took your view that you leave your uh, politics behind. But this man uh, was very, very um, convinced that he had the right in the cricket dressing room to tell me what tell me what a so and so I was. Outrageous! It couldn't have been good for team morale either. No. I, I hope you ran him out. <laughs> Actually, no worse than that. I remember he came on to bowl and I took a brilliant, well, for me, a brilliant catch off his bowling. Well, That's no very, very generous of you. <laughs> no hard feelings. Um, we, there was some, you came in a little bit after me, Angela. When, at the beginning of, when I first started playing for the Lords of Commons, I was working for Dennis Ely and it was very much Tory-run outfit and it had a bit of the atmosphere of a, of a of a county cricket club in the fifties, you know the the MPs and the peers were um, the amateur batsmen, sort of the, the close fielders, and the um, you know the hired help like me were a um, um, were the bowlers. And I once said they managed to pick a side once with no bowling at all except for me and one other, and we had to share the forty six overs between us. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the best balance. No, it wasn't. Uh, not in my case. I, I, I had to do the. I had to go uphill into the wind, and um, a lovely man you may remember, perhaps playing with um, Brian Muster, who's a House Commons police, former retired House Commons policeman, and who actually played for the club for um, for fifty years. Um, bowled down the hill and the wind behind him. 
uh, as he uh, said, and quite rightly a, too. I think a 50 year stint in. Mm, quite right too, and he's a, a very good, very handy bowler indeed. Um, but um, it, there was quite, the, it's had moments, I've been with it on and off, it's had moments of being very, you know, sniff. It's had moments about being very relaxed about the qualifications. Um, you know, have you heard Big Ben? Yes, oh, you're in the team, and and very snooty about it, and sort of insisting that um, priority had to be given to members and um, as is correct, staff, the commons, and staff commons. And, I, did, and I always felt, Richard, and I'm sure you did. It was a tremendous honour to play uh, for the Lords and Commons uh, alongside you know MPs and sometimes cabinet ministers. And uh, it was lovely. It was a real it was, privilege. It was lovely, but um, when you get, as I often was, when I was, uh, as often asked to help out at, at, at very late, <laughs> very late in the proceedings, um, I'd get an anguished phone call from some organizer, and so much so that I had my, I had an answer phone, as they were then called. I had my answer phone message um, time to say, <laughs> "Where's the match? When do I have to be there?" Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, they've got so many late calls that um, part of the trouble the bloom with, went off. Yeah, I think part of the trouble with putting a side together was that sometimes unexpected things would happen, or the constituency had call, or the whips had object, or some bit of business that you hadn't anticipated would come up, and you really had to drop out. And so there was always that fluidity about the team, which is probably what led to you having almost no bowlers on that occasion. Might well be. I've, I don't know what you experienced, Angela, but nobody seemed to complain very much when I um, started playing for the Lords and Commons that um, their elected representatives were playing cricket and a lot of MPs would actually talk about their exploits in their constituencies. But I get the impression now that people don't expect their MP to have any leisurely life at all. I think that there has been a shift from the one to the other, definitely. <laughs> Um, I, I think that uh, when I first joined the Commons, there was, in, if, if anything, a little bit too much deference about members of Parliament and what they did with their time. And now there's there's um, too little understanding uh, that, that often you have a six or seven day week and uh, that taking maybe a few hours out every now and again to play cricket would actually be good for your general well-being. And so, yeah, I think that that has changed and it's a it's a regrettable change in, in many ways. You know, um, I'm not sure that most people understand quite what the rhythm of the life of a member of parliament is uh, and quite how busy and, and, and full on it can be and how effective being able to take a little bit of time out to um, pursue something that you're interested in, be it cricket or a, another form of sport is is helpful to general well-being i'd say it's very very healthy and uh, you go back and you probably you probably have to do several late night votes and the fact you've been out in the open air for five hours in the afternoon has done you a lot of power of good to be honest i think that uh, watching the being in the tea room when the the commons football team has played the next morning when you know half a dozen people can hardly walk and several <laughs> of them have been to hospital because they've pretend that they've thought that they were still in their teens and suddenly they've realised that oh. nothing works in quite the same anymore. It's, uh, it's probably more damaging than spending a little bit more time on the cricket field. I, I, I do think so. Um, I'm fascinated to move the conversation on, since we have you, Angela, on to how you think, uh, what, what your views are about 
politics and sport? How should governments mm. involve themselves? I mean, the pattern in Britain, isn't it, is to maintain an arm's length principle and let the sports run themselves. Is that right? Or how do you see it? Well, it's been very much that, hasn't it? The kind of um, the, the rule of the amateur self-regulated uh, sports. And I think actually that there's been a change in approach to the professionalism of sport. If we're going to want success, we have to be professional. And, and perhaps that means that we've got to have a look at the way that sport is organised and developed right from the beginning. And that starts in school. And it also starts in the provision of proper facilities and the capacity for kids to be introduced to sport. And I think we've missed out on quite a lot of potential um, for our nation because we've kind of left it to amateur managements. That's a very profound point. Um, and um, I think when you entered the house, 1992, was the... Uh, coincided with the period when um, sport was moved permanently into the department that became DCMS. Yeah. Um, I think David Mello is the first sort of overall minister in charge of sport, and it's sort of kind of stayed there ever since. I'm going to ask a very um, nasty question, of which you've had no warning. Who's the present minister of sport? <laughs> without uh, without prompting, without uh, looking him up. Present Her Minister up. of Sport now was Tracy Tra uh, Tracy Crouch, who was very good. You know, I I I have no idea. I had a feeling that would be the case because um, they are rather anonymous. Um, some yeah. of the ministers in this in this government, I have to say. I mean, mm. I'm one that spent ages trying to get chess characterised as a sport, so it could get access to some development mm. uh, money. And I think development money is really important. I think that what happened after the 2012 Olympics is quite interesting as well, the way that um, Sport England have, have, have tried to help develop our capacity as a nation. Um, and obviously we've seen some of the ugly sides of that as well with the, the uh, abusive coaches and things like that, which are just coming out now. How do you get a balance between the government having a proper strategy which in my view has got to be about having access for all kids when they're at school to see if they've got sporting interests and capacity so that they can live a healthier life, even if they don't end up at the Olympics or end up in the test team. Um, and I just think we've completely missed out on a lot of that. Sport isn't a part of the curriculum that uh, the government seems to think is important. It's not been helped by the cuts in education which have meant that keeping school playing fields keeping equipment being able to have PE teachers and specialist coaches it's 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 made it very difficult for us to have a kind of ladder from primary school up into those areas of excellence where we need them and, and it seems to me often that our capacity to develop sporting excellence it happens almost by accident rather than by design, and I'd prefer it to be by design. Well, I think I'm sure that's right, but I just wonder how much it's helped development of sport, particularly for children, is helped by having a, a minister who sort of sits in a department called the, a department of sport. He's not connected to any other um, ministerial... Uh, he's not connected to education. He's not connected to health. He's not connected to... 
you know, departments that really do things within people's lives. And he's got, he, he or she has always got, got to have this hands-off attitude of letting sport manage themselves. It make, I think it makes it very hard for government with this sort of ministerial organisation to really to do anything about sport in national life. I think you can have a strategy and you can have a strategy over time. Now, there was a, there was a, a strategy for the run-up to the London Olympics after it had been won, which was reasonably successful. It was, it was the one that was based on um, funding sports and, and connecting that directly to their success, that kind of elite way of doing things. And we've seen how uh, recently with news about abusive coaching and people um, going over the top, that that has its dark side. But having no strategy at all and just hoping that somehow your sporting heroes will develop is, is clearly not going to happen except in a few outstanding circumstances. If you look at football and grassroots football um, and how that works, that's by far the most played and the most popular um, form of sporting activity. And that's partially, I think, because the players that succeed are, are such heroes and so many people aspire to wanting to do that. Um, but you don't get that kind of support for other sports. And so I'd like to see much more of a strategic approach where the government sort of facilitated um, the practical capacity in our education system of, of, of good active coaching across the board to be available and for that you need equipment you need sporting mm. facilities you need playing fields you need gyms you need indoor sporting facilities I visit lots of places in my own constituency where dedicated people are teaching young kids to be gymnasts and they're doing it on a shoestring in their own time just barely getting by. And you go from sport to sport and you see that that's the problem. So we need a proper strategy to sort that out, which is going to last for longer than five seconds. Angela, it's been a real privilege and a real insight to talk to you. And uh, I've loved learning about your involvement in cricket and in politics more generally. It's been uh, great to chat to you and nice to see you again, Richard. Well, thank you, Angela, and um, thank you again for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of um, this very, very full cricket season. I certainly intend to. Thanks very much for having me. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Roborn, in a sun-drenched Wiltshire. It's cricketing weather. It certainly is, and um, it is now goodbye from me, Richard Heller.